Hello, welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we're branching out away from horses again to have what I've been looking so forward to, a conversation with Vidya. And Vidya, I'm not even going to begin to try and give your full name, but I think you should. And then the question is, how do we introduce you to our audience? So we met for the first time at the Clicker Expo in January in Seattle. And as we were talking and you were sharing some of the things that you do with the concept training, I thought, oh, this is so, so, so cool and so much fun that this needs to be shared. So even though you work with dogs um, and not horses, the concepts behind concepts, concept training, are valid no matter what species you're working with. And the way that you approach the concept training, I think, is just so, so user friendly and so much more creative than the way that it is, I don't know, sometimes used with the the way that people sometimes use it. So that's why we're having this podcast today. But would you like to jump in and just share a little bit of your background with training and so on? Yes, happy to. I mean, this is such a privilege. I was, I mean, when you asked me, my jaw was literally on the floor. And my first answer was, do you really mean it? You know, because I, I couldn't believe it. So yeah, this, is, this is such a privilege. So my background to animal training was mostly scream at the animal and it works or it doesn't. So that was, you know, that that was really where I started. And it was mostly... Um, you know, household knowledge that you have because this worked for somebody um, that you know for a cat who was counter surfing. Oh, you do that and it solves the problem. You know, that was my kind of knowledge. And I had cats for, well, I, I used to hang out with cats beforehand. I had my adopted my own cats, two of them back in 2013. And that was still very much, you know, very punishment based. And along that way, I adopted my psychound Beanie. And everything that I knew about how to make threats and get results just did not work because he would, he would cower, but he would do the thing that I wanted to stop anyway. You see, so it was kind of, it, it just, I, I didn't, it was not just about an absence of results. It was also a complete breakdown of relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore I was completely in tears, in pieces, and I completely coincidentally reached out to a lady that I knew at a daycare where I had originally been planning to take my dog, you know, so I was thinking about that. I reached out to her and I said, oh, can you help me before I have to get back in touch with the rescue and say, this isn't working. And she was coincidentally a positive reinforcement trainer. That was her. So that was how 
I got into learning what a marker is, got into learning that you can actually teach a behavior that doesn't involve screaming. And I started working on integrating him with my cats. As you can imagine, that was quite, you know, that was quite a journey with this. I yes. found an ex-hunting, an ex-hunting dog. And then I started looking into the things that he needs in terms of his welfare and a lot of that revolved around what we can probably label as kind of confidence you know building his skills in regular life and that sort of stuff and I started thinking more and more about how I wanted to equalize the power relationship between us that was actually what I was thinking I thought I want to know what you think everything that I do with him whether that is cooperative care husbandry work, which is a huge part of what I do with him. And then on to concept work, which I started. You, you, the common theme there is always, I'm going to give you a repertoire that I would love for you to use and tell me how you see the world. Mm -hmm. That's such an interesting way of phrasing it, though, to equalize the power. Yes, I love that. Yeah. I don't know... I thought a lot about, you know, I don't, I think it would change who he is so fundamentally to say, oh, Beanie, you're all on your own now. And, you know, consider me not part of the picture. I think that wouldn't necessarily work for him. But at the same time, that was how I got into looking at start buttons, looking at, you know, it's about giving him the repertoire that is kind of socially acceptable and safe to be able to say, this is what I want. This is how I want things to work for me. I don't want this. And I would, I would rather you stop this, but not without biting, you know, to, to do that using, using, much, using behaviors that can be taken seriously, you know, and you don't, in Shirag's words, right? If you, if you listen to the whisper, you don't have to shout. But I've, it's interesting that um, we're hearing more and more about this idea to, I mean, equalize the power it's, you know, the power, we have in the beginning full power over everything. When they eat, when they pee, when they go out, when they train. So, and I'm finding there's more and more discussion about this idea of giving them back some choices and some power. Um, we were just, uh, Alex and I, at the uh, Arts and Animal, Arts and Science of Animal Training Conference, and there was a fascinating talk on how we can coerce our animal to to do what we want with positive reinforcement. Is that but Dr. Is that Joe Lang's talk? It was yes. Joe yes. 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 I know. Isn't that fascinating? You know, if there's only if you're putting your animal in front of only one choice, and at the end of this choice there's positive reinforcement, and he wants or needs this reinforcement. Well, you're coercing him into doing the, be the behavior in order to get to this reinforcement. And he gave all kinds of examples, and I found it so interesting, you know. And I think the, it's, it's a continuum where we're trying to move the needle more towards giving them more choice, more power. And it's, it's a great thing to be going after, I think. Well, one of the things that he helped me understand the way he phrases certain things I kind of go light bulb moment right so um, one of the things that he kind of helped me get my head around is that you need it's it's not just about the presence of the contingencies it's also about the animal having the repertoire 
Yes. So yes. it's not just like, oh, if I, um, so one of the things that I started doing after, as I started exploring choice and control and, you know, and how can I empower you to tell me what you want to do? And how can I give you the repertoire where in an animal there, in, in, in my dog, he, he genuinely, it was a lot of that was probably very new to him, you know? I started thinking about the same thing with my cats and because I started clicker training, I started working with my cats. I started doing work at the RSPCA and volunteering there and things like that. And this has a lot of the animals that I have generally come into contact with just because I give them the opportunity to walk away or they, they don't know that they can. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have the behavior. They need to know that an alternative behavior can be just as easily, re- you know, we will also have access to reinforcement. And, you know, because of course, if they can walk away, that's one thing. It's better, certainly better than being forced to stay there. But, you know, if they can have access to the same reinforcer, yeah, and they stay, mm-hmm. well, now that's starting well, to be interesting. So my question to you is this, though, I have, my question is, is it possible to actually create exactly the same reinforcer. So if I may give you an example, and this has been how one of the things that I was thinking about. So with my girl, with my cat, I work with them every day. I have two cats, I work with them every day. And what I do is I have a towel in the corner of the room. Mm -hmm. And every time she would, or my boy cat, every time they would go to that towel, I will give them a treat there either which way. Yeah, so you you go to the towel, you're gonna get one either which way. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, would you rather work with me away from the towel and do something else that involves engagement with me? Or would you rather hang out at the towel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your, your treat is available to you either way. But I'm not, I'm not convinced. I'm not sure how I can create exactly the same reinforcer. Yeah, it's not because it's the same thing with the goats. So when the goats are out in the barnyard, especially in the summer, there's a hillside of weeds and grass and trees that they could knock down and and devour. Or they could stay in the barnyard and work with me. And you could say, well, there's all that food and there's food here. So they're they're free to go and, and get their own food. But the food that's on the hillside, the, the weeds and so on, does not have social attention. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And so, so it's not equivalent. Exactly. So because working with me offers interaction with me as well, right? Yes. yes. And I, I think, you know, in Ken's um, uh, experiment, I think yes. certainly the social... Where, so just to really quickly uh, summarize it, where he had an animal who, after a certain number of years, was not as willing to participate in blood draws, I think it was. And so he suggested, and this animal had been training with many different trainers, some more experimented than others. And so he suggested to the team of trainers that to give the animal a choice to either participate in the blood draw and get his fish or go to a buoy, touch a buoy to indicate he did not want to participate in the procedure and still get a fish. And at the beginning, all the trainers said, well, it's never going to work. He'll always go touch the buoy. But what they found was that, no, when he did come to participate in the blood draw, but with the trainers that he was 
with with the trainers that were more experienced that he had a relationship with and so i think this because it was the same really the same kind of fish so i think the social interaction with the the preferred trainer mm -hmm. was part of the reason why he decided because otherwise it would have been just fishing equal fish so there was something and i don't think it would have been the blood draw itself although of course you can condition anything but it seems to me that the social interaction was the difference would you agree alex am i describing this properly yeah the, right right and i th i think our so the social interactions that we have have enormous reinforcing power there that goes back to that very that first video that i ever saw of an animal being trained with with marker signal and gary priest it was the african bull elephant i've described it in other podcasts and it was this african bull elephant at the san diego zoo and very aggressive animal but he's standing there so calmly offering his foot for a foot cleaning letting them pull his his great big enormous ear through a very narrow slot and gary priest the director of training at the time made says you know i can't emphasize to you enough how aggressive this animal is but he's standing here cooperating with us all for a bucket of food treats and the social attention so he was emphasizing the social attention and i don't maybe when you're working with butterflies or jumping spiders or something of that sort that that drops out but certainly for our who domestic knows, though? who, who knows? knows who knows <laughs> yeah. but certainly for for our domestic animals that is an important component see i think but about it i think with dogs for example so you know i think about what constitutes pressure and what is choice and so on so i go okay so yesterday or monday my my lurcher so beanie had a um, post op so he you know he, he had a he had surgery on friday last week he's recovering he's doing superbly on monday he had his post-op check now he is the kind of dog who has found over several years due to several mistakes on my part, veterinary care, extremely stressful. We have worked on this for you know years. This is a huge part of what I do with him and so on. And I took him to the vets on Monday for our two day post-op check. And I, one of the primary goals of that is I wanted to assess, was there any fallout from what we had done on Friday? So we had constructed that plan. It went literally gold standard. It was really well done. But I wanted to know, okay, what have we drawn from the bank? So I'm there thinking, okay, how can I construct a situation for him where I can constantly assess his willingness, you know, however we want to operationalize willingness. So I'm thinking, well, if I walk slightly in front of him, I'm actually going to put pressure for him to take two steps forward. Mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. I would walk right next to him, so, you know, it's, it's, this, it's this dance in that movement, you know, between him and I, where I'm gauging how 
easily or how low latency there is in his movement. And you mean, you mean towards the vet's door? Is yeah, it? yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. So for okay. example, the situation was he gets out of the car training, he goes to, he has a very predictable path that he takes to go in because he likes investigating where all the dogs have peed. So, you know, he goes here, he goes here, it's very predictable. And I'm constantly thinking, okay, where do I position myself so that I can assess what you want to do? Because I would like for myself to be, there are some times when I want to be the most salient cue, and there are other times when I want to be just on the radar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is one of those instances where I just want to be on the radar, but I really want to know what you're doing. And in order to do that, I need to move in a way that is not putting pressure on you, mm -hmm. you know, and it's so, I was thinking about it and I got, and I was kind of going, okay, what, what is choice? Because him wanting to hang out with me is such a strong reinforcer for him. So if I would take two steps forward, he would actually walk two steps forward towards the clinic. Yes. You see? So it's interesting that the, the value of that hanging out with you and that social interaction and the, oh, what a good boy you are, Beanie. You know, the value of things that we just consider as part of our everyday interaction, but how important that might be to the animal. But of course, now you have to tell us, was there a fallout from the surgery? No, there was absolutely no fallout. He went oh. in, he went in by himself. He allowed our nurse, whom he, we work with quite closely, to touch, examine and poke the five different sets of stitches with his kind of stationing behavior and everything. And he walked out of there like a boss. Wow. Good work, Vidya. <laughs> <sighs> My yeah. goodness me. My goodness me. It was... Um, yeah, he was because that's that's a big deal. I mean, it's one thing yeah. to, you know, prepare for an injection, but for surgery. Well, we, it was it has it, it's kind of a long term planning, right? Oh, so I'm he's sure. been. Yeah, indeed, you know, so sort of and the same dog. In So two years ago, I used to do a lot of husbandry work just at home. And two years ago, I took him to the same clinic because he had a tumor on his back leg. And he basically, you know, it was traumatizing. It was, they, they needed three nurses to basically hold and stab. Yeah, that was what it was like. And it was dreadful. It was absolutely dreadful. And I was crying in the reception because I could hear my dog behind oh. the closed doors. You know, it was dreadful. And that was the day I started working with him in the clinic. So two years on. Mm. Yeah. And it has clearly paid off. Yeah, and this is this is what uh, the kind of dog we would label as very sensitive. I mean, yeah. it's not just your happy, no, golden retriever who has his nail cuts and you know thinks the treats taste delicious. Mm. Um, See, but this is also interesting because one of the things you have to think about then with choice is what is the level of fallout. So, how much choice mm. do you want to give to this animal? Kind of also, in some ways, one of the factors that plays into that is if I were to use some amount of pressure here, what's the risk of fallout I'm going to see for this particular animal? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, because it's very, you mean that it's very different from one to another? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Because I think one of the conversations I was having with at Clicker Expo Luminos, this was last year in, in the UK, was around, you know, if you really need it to happen, what do you do? You know, that, that kind of, that kind, if you really need something to happen and there's a cost to that, what would you do? I think 
one of the factors that has to go into that is, well, what is the level of expected fallout if you're going to go ahead and do it? Well, the other question is, how much committed are you to it? Because I'm sure this this demanded of you a lot of work and commitment. That is true. It has. But I think, I don't know, do you, do you see as part of kind of your role as guardians of the animals in your care, to what degree do you see it almost as your obligation? Like it is part of your care, you know, mm-hmm. for the animals in your care to empower them, to, to prepare them. But it's still, it does make sense. But if you have a dog or a horse that struggles with, say, veterinary care, mm-hmm. it can be hard to imagine that it could be anything different Mm -hmm. oh it's just you know this is a really sensitive individual or really frightened individual where we put it in we put the you know we put those feelings in the individual that's what this animal is not this is the behavior that's being presented and and it can be hard to imagine that it can change and so the thought of doing anything doesn't seem worth it because it's not going to help until you have real examples, real models where you can go, wow, oh, oh, look at that. Conceptually, exactly what you say, you need to conceptually, you need to get the difference between the individuals, so the emotion and the emotional behaviors, you know, you need to be able to say, I can change that behavior. All that is is behavior towards yes. a certain function. Yes. Yeah. And I think that the owners need to be empowered more because, you know, we're, and we just did three episodes on counter conditioning and desensitization. And this is, there's a lot of this and that in what we're talking about. And I think that the perspectives are changing and improving. You know, we're, we're getting more information to help us apply it correctly. And, and we're looking at it in a much more operant way now, which I think will help the owners to get there because it's, you know, it can be a challenging task. And, yes. and you know, so much so that people ask, well, should I be there or not when this is happening at the vet's office? Because I don't want to be associated with all this they want their relationship to stay intact and they're afraid that if they're getting associated with all this that it might hurt that there might be the fallouts that you were talking about in the relationship for the animal etc so i think it's very much something that where the owners the practitioners need to be empowered and helped to know what to do to make it work yes agreed it's about the learners having the repertoire. There we go. Yes. Yeah. So concept training. Yes. Yes. So. yes. Sorry, we just kind of went down a rabbit hole. We we got we went down the rabbit hole of husbandry and and actually I'm sure there are people listening to this going, "No, no, stay in that rabbit hole. Tell me what you did. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you did." And and I don't know, maybe we should spend a few minutes having you describe some of the things that you did over the last two years that got you to this point and then we could go to concept training let's do that let's let's do another five minutes on this and then we'll do concept training okay all right which will be a nice follow-up because i'm sure you'll be very happy to have the concept training with your dog who just went through surgery yes yes 
because that will allow you to continue to train him and have fun with him. So what did you do for two years to prep him and make him a vet pro? Well, no, he isn't that. He is far <laughs> from that. It's he, he, we, we will continue to climb that mountain for the rest of his life. Mm. That is what uh, that is likely to be. I, it's, it's been a longer journey than that because the dog that I originally adopted wouldn't let me touch his leg. So, you know, it's sort of, that was the dog that I first adopted. Mm. The day that I discovered what husbandry training was, was the day when he ran into a forest and he came, all I heard with this, you know, you, you, have you heard the term greyhound scream of death? No, no. It's a, it's, it's a term, there's, it is claimed that greyhounds have a very specific howl that pierces through absolutely everything when when they are in distress you know that so it's it's almost it's like it's so recognizable that it's it's kind of casually called the greyhound's cream of death yeah mm. and so that so he went into this this forest he was running and he it was some um, there, there was a bed of uh, pine needles yeah Oh. Um, and he came back, leg in the air, screaming, and there was no way that I could touch this dog, right? It was, he was all teeth. There was just no way I could get close to this dog. Oh. And um, thankfully, there was a dog walker who was so lovely, and she kind of made a makeshift muzzle out of the lead and discovered that there was a pine needle in his paw, took the pine needle out, and obviously he was like, hey, that was all great. Can I come back in the forest again? Mm. But that was the day I discovered that there is such a thing called husbandry work. Mm. <laughs> because I thought, well, if this happens again, there's no way. So I started, oh, it was, oh my goodness. It was, I think I was first pointed to, you know, the bucket game and Shirak Patel's methods of teaching the animal subtle ways of requesting the procedure to stop so that you you know you don't have to use teeth you can just look away and that'll make things stop and then i just kind of built up from that over a long time it was what was the bucket uh, exercise oh okay I let don't me know see this exercise can, oh let me see if i can do this justice i don't think i can do this justice can i so the the, the place to learn about it so on facebook mm -hmm. um Hirag has a page called the bucket gate and okay. you go into that and then you go into the videos that he has specific instances of people even on youtube if you look for bucket game there are three specific videos that i really like and okay. i usually have pointed people too i i also post i have a i have a facebook page um it's called the unlikely tricksters and i post a lot about you know of our training right so you know it's it's uh, it's almost a live regular commentary of how things go the trials and tribulations of living with a dog and two cats and working with all the rescue you know all, all the rspca and and so on and it's very very let me try and do this so the idea with the bucket game is that the animal learns to focus or look at a bucket that contains food and that the when the animal is looking at that bucket the procedure may continue if the animal would like for you to stop the procedure whatever that is at whatever stage all the animal has to do is just look away from that bucket yeah so it is an, a, a stationing behavior up 
opt-in, opt-out. That's kind of the function of that bucket in a way. It provides the animal, you know, it, it means that the animal kind of stations in one place. It means that they all they have to do to make something stop is look away. As owners, people, trainers start to use the bucket game more and more, I think we learn that there is a lot more subtlety to it that actually just because an animal is looking at the bucket doesn't mean he's entirely comfortable. You know, there's a bigger picture to build and so on. So there's subtlety around what does consent mean and how do you operationalize that and how do you look for that in this specific individual and so on. There's a lot of... It goes back to Joe's degrees of freedom, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. It does actually. It does. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. that's, does that help describe... Yes, yes, yes. Well, I'm, I'm going to look it up because it sounds uh, really interesting. Yep. Indeed, absolutely. With my dog and my cats and so on, what I think about is, okay, what are the different stationing behaviors that I would like for them to have? What are the sorts of veterinary behaviors or, you know, even husbandry stuff at home that I need to be able to do? How do I break that end behavior down. So how precisely can I describe that end behavior and how can I compartmentalize? So how, what are the prerequisites for all those things? How do I piece that apart as much as I can? So how do I split? That might include things like, oh, the smell of stuff or, you know, he needs to get used to the clippers and it sounds horrendous right near to his ear, or, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then it's building a jigsaw. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because we know we've talked a lot about, well, not a lot, but we've talked some of the start button requesting procedure to start. But I find it's interesting, too, to stay aware of requests for procedure to stop. Yes. It's a different contingency, isn't it? So mm -hmm. I think requesting something to stop you could say there's there's relief from that stopping you know so is that a that, that's a negative reinforcement contingency perhaps you know so yeah which is which is fine you know it's part of our toolbox too yeah but i think we if we think about it and if we can be thoughtful about it and think about what are the positions that are comfortable for this animal you know is it is it reasonable for me to ask my dog to stay put and put his nose against a particular spot against the wall when I'm spending ages messing about with his foot, for example. Mm -hmm. you know? Or actually, is it okay if he would just stand between my legs facing the opposite way and he can look if he wants to? You yes. know, so, and mm -hmm. I can still do exactly what I want to do. So it's, I think once one starts thinking about what consent might look like and the function of each of these, the stationing and the choice and, you know, and so on. But you know why one of the reasons too I'm finding this interesting for the horse people is because, you know, at the farrier or when you're, some of the procedures they have to go through take some time and they may be okay starting it, mm. you know, giving your foot to the farrier, but, you know, it takes, uh, there's duration there. And so requesting the procedure to stop, I find is, is something important too. It's it's interesting, yeah. And you know, if you missed, if you started and you didn't get the message, well, there's still another opportunity yes. to get the message from the animal that yeah. He's, yeah. he's no longer willing or, or was not willing and you missed it. Yeah, absolutely. See, I think the way one might even think about it is that it's the, the entire procedure is made up of 
several layers mm -hmm. of start buttons, exactly like you say that, right? It's like, it's made up of several layers. So if mm -hmm. I wanted to put eye drops into my dog's eye or my cat, she's trading for eye drops as well at the moment, I might say, okay, what is your stationing behavior? They might offer that. Then I'm going to say, okay, here's my next cue. I'm going to hold this up. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to hold up the dropper. That is information. So that's my cue, you know? So mm -hmm. then my animal can say, okay, i they've spotted this they they're you know they're they're looking at the eye drop in the dropper in my hand and then what i might look for is that my dog would move his eye from the dropper to looking straight ahead that's his start button he's saying i've taken that information in i'm going to mm -hmm. look ahead now yeah mm -hmm. so it's the the way the procedure goes is made up of layers and layers and layers mm. of start buttons rather than you've opted in yeah 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 that's it <laughs> that's it you know whereas if i think having that really granular communication mm. means that you can that it, well well you split not lump yeah it, it, it yeah. kind of that's how i describe it to myself mm -hmm. does mm -hmm. this resonate with you do I you think about cooperative care this way oh yeah this totally resonates with me but it's not just cooperative care and I think it's it's too e it's also easy to, to compartmentalize and to think that cooperative care is this thing over here and and yes I do that this over there for cooperative care but actually what you're describing is the back and forth communication that should be there for all performance work yes yes you know that's you just described a really good ride yeah yeah that's it yes yeah. exactly yeah, exactly. I think it's it's interesting to think about how to the theme of kind of empowering and so on. Um, two weeks ago, it was absolutely pouring here. It was dreadful weather on a Sunday. Where is here? Where are you? Oh, I'm in the UK. Okay. And it was pouring. It was a Sunday. It was really stormy. It was very windy outside. And I had posted a photo on my Facebook page saying Beanie had very clear views about the storm outside. And it's a photo where he's wearing his coat and his lead and he's lying on the sofa. So he's very, <laughs> he's a decision happening woman. So. I'm, I'm staying with the cats out of the water. Exactly. You go do what you're, you go do your thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, he operates a live and let live policy. Yes. <laughs> if, if, if you want to go for a walk, by all means, go for a walk. Yeah, please do. I'm staying here. <laughs> exactly. And I had commented on this later through that saying, oh, I asked him if he would like to go for a ride in a car or if he would like to stay on the sofa or if he would like to go for a walk around the block. He said he, he thought he would go in the car. So now we've made our way to a Heathland and he seems okay. You know, he wants, he says he wants to go out for a little walk. So I just wrote that out as if it would be a story that people would tell, right? Mm -hmm. And someone asked me, how do you know what he, uh, what do you mean by he tells you? And I was trying my best to sort of describe what that means. And this is, what we've just talked about in terms of that layers of communication, the to and fro and the job. So I offer you a piece of information. What information would you like to offer me back? Here's my mm -hmm. next piece of information. What, you know, we don't need words to do this. No. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you say, and this may be our way to get back to the concept training. I read that you use it to let him know, to let you know rather what he wants next. You use the concept training for that too. Yes, I do. Yeah. 
How do you do that? Can you describe that? Oh, that is, oh my word. Or should we start at the beginning and describe what concept training is? Yes, exactly. But we have to come back to this. I'll make a yes, note. Yes, yes, make a note. So let's start at the beginning. <laughs> so the whole idea of, you know, what is concept training and how is, you know, is it, how okay, does, how so is it differentiated it's... from just? Oh, oh, oh my, Alex. Oh. I'm kind of, I'm kind of here going, how can I do this justice when I'm talking to you too? Um, Just as so, you would to, when you explain it to dog owner. <laughs> yeah. So I think the way that other people describe concept work, and it, it, it makes sense to me, is that you teach the animal a set of rules that apply under certain examples. You choose your examples in such a way that you allow the animal several opportunities to conceptualize, to draw out that rule from those examples. And the, the beauty of concept training is watching the animal apply the rule set you have taught them to an environment that they have never seen before. Mm -hmm. Then it's that. So... I describe it to people like you build a skyscraper with your dog. You, you build this massive, you, you think about everything. You go, what goes first? The foundations go first. Okay, the brick goes next. You know, this is, you, you build the prerequisites like bit by bit, like that jigsaw. You know, you build that skyscraper and then you let them turn on the lights. You let them turn on the lights. That's the image we're going to leave you with. Next week, we'll dive into concept training. Veja is going to take us through the basics of how you begin to teach concepts, and she'll share with us some examples that will help you understand the kinds of behaviors that sit under the umbrella of concept training. It's tremendous fun. And Veja has invented games to play with her dog that are totally charming. I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. So next week, join us for a deep dive into concept training. And do please remember that I have a second podcast, Horses for Future. It's looking at what horse people can do, and really everybody can do, to help in the climate change crisis. You can find that podcast at sequestercarbon.com or look for it through your regular podcast provider. And as always, with both of the podcasts, please do leave us a five-star review. That helps to spread the word. Thank you, and have fun with your training.